Brian Loritz is the lead pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Silicon Valley and the author of five books. He was recently voted one of the top 30 emerging Christian leaders and is the founder and president of the Kanos Movement, an organization aimed at establishing the multi-ethnic church in America as the new normal. Brian is a sought-after speaker with Family Life Ministry, the Global Leadership Summit, Catalyst, and other national conferences. Join us in welcoming back Pastor Brian Lorenz. Well, what a complete honor and joy it is to be here with you all. Um, and I just love Pastor Jamie, although I got to say, I got to start paying attention to the section on the speaker request forms I get that says uh, the dates. Um, you know, I think I'm serious. I think I'm preaching in Chicago and Canada in December. Uh, and here I am in Arizona in July. Uh, love y'all, but this is a real act of sacrifice uh, for me, especially coming from the Bay Area um, and the Golden State Warriors. God bless the Golden State Warriors. Amen, amen, amen. Um, sons, it'll be another decade, uh, but um, count on all joy when you encounter various trials. If you've got your Bibles, please meet me in the book of Philemon. Uh, as you're turning there, I'm just so thrilled to have my, my wife with me, my boo. We just celebrated 19 years of marriage. Uh, she's, she's actually not here tonight. She'll be here tomorrow. She's hanging out with her mama. Uh, she, my wife grew up here in Scottsdale. She went to uh, Xavier, uh, graduated from there. So this is just great for her uh, to be back home. And uh, met her in church a couple weeks after she got saved and felt compelled to the Lord to be a part of her discipleship strategy. Uh, and so here we are. Uh, we've got three boys, uh, 17, 15, and 13. I heard a couple groans. Yeah, help me with their grocery bill if you really feel that bad about it. Unbelievable. I think I told you last year, uh, uh, when, when, they, when they come to me, hopefully in their 20s, and they say, Dad, I met this girl and think I've fallen in love. How do you know if you're in love? I know what I'm going to say to them. When you can look into her eyes the way you look into my refrigerator, she's the one. She is absolutely, positively the one. As that great theologian Beyonce says, put a ring on it. Put a ring on it. Some of you are like, Beyonce, who's Beyonce? Oh. Uh, the chocolate person uh, in the room will tell you who that is. But anyways, so good to be here with you. Uh, I see they've got, speaking of chocolate, I see they've got a ticker on a chocolate preacher, 37 minutes and 49, 48. That's cruel and unusual punishment, man, putting the timer on me. Uh, in the spirit of World Cup, do I get stoppage time? They're like, nah, brother, you need to get on with it. Uh, also grateful to have my uncle. My uncle is here. Uncle, wave at the people. My aunt and uncle are here. Um, it's good seeing them. And then uh, one of the members from our church, one of the faithful members from our church, God's really used her and a host of others to, uh, our church wouldn't be where it is without them. Lydia is here, won't make her wave at the people, but uh, especially uh, honored that her mom is here as well. Her mom lives here in Arizona. She was in a nasty car accident, I think about 18 months or so ago, and uh, we were praying hard for her. And so it's just good to see her standing on her own two feet in the house of the Lord tonight. God is good and God is faithful. Praying about my time with you all this weekend, I feel compelled to the Lord to do a two-part series out of the book of Philemon. 
out of the book of Philemon. I want to read the whole book to you. Chill out. It's just 25 verses. Uh, but I want to walk us through. Tonight will be part one. I'll explain to you what part one will look like, and then tomorrow will be part two. Pick me up in verse one of the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker in Aphia. Most scholars tell us that's his wife, our sister in Archippus. Scholars tell us is his son, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, verse 8, he gets to the meat of it. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now he's buttering him up. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed, indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." This, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here's the big ask. If you consider me your partner, receive, receive, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I love this. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. <laughs> yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, verse 22 has got to be the most passive, aggressive verse in all of the Bible. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. That's hilarious. Here's Paul asking Philemon for a big favor to receive back the one who wronged him. And Paul says, oh, by the way, prepare me a guest room because I want to stay at your house to see if you did what I asked you to do. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the legacy of Scottsdale Bible Church. I think of uh, my own journey and how it's been impacted indirectly by Scottsdale Bible. I was a student at a small Bible college that was formerly known as Philadelphia College of Bible. Our president was a guy by the name of Dr. Cheryl Babb, who used to be the pastor here. Think of his godliness. Think of the way he cared for his wife all those years she was sick and would ultimately die of MS. And I would just be in awe of him. Thank you, Lord God, 
for the reach of Scottsdale Bible Church. Thank you for its current pastor, Pastor Jamie, and the way you're using him. I pray that you would refresh him while he's on vacation. Thank you for the expansion of this ministry and, and the other location at, at Cactus, Lord God, and all those streaming us online. Now, Father God, as the old African-American preachers would pray, would you stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my tongue those things you'd have us know, say, and do. God, my aim this weekend is not to change anybody. I can't even change myself. But that's the work of your spirit. So I pray that the seed of your word falls on good ground. Yeah, that's my role. I just want to scatter the seed of your word through the faithful examining and exposition of scripture Practical applications, as my grandmother would say, put shoe leather on your word. Show us how to walk in it, we pray. It's to that end, I'm available to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. In her classic memoir, The Liars Club, Mary Carr tells the hilarious but heart-wrenching story of the time in which her aunt and uncle got into an argument. Her aunt went out to the grocery store to get a package of sugar. She comes back home. The uncle seems to ask a harmless question. How much did it cost? She quotes him the price. And now there is a marital realignment session. Okay, we'll call it an argument. The uncle thinks that she paid way too much. She doesn't think it's that big of a deal. Tit for tat, back and forth. They go back for hours. True story. Unable to resolve the issue, Mary Carr's uncle does the only thing he can think to do. In a heat of passion, he takes a chainsaw and cuts their house in two. He gets boards and boards up the rough edges on either side of the house. He moves into one half of the house and his wife moves into the other half of the house. And there they live literally in a house divided for 40 years. Unable to resolve the issue. Unable to come to a sense of peace or what the Jews call shalom. Unable to mediate the hurt and the differences. Now I get it on some level, this, this story really doesn't, um, really doesn't resonate with us. I'm gonna go out here on a limb and say, none of you all have done that to your own homes. You haven't done anything that drastic. But on another level, this story comes by each of our zip codes. It comes by each of our homes and puts its feet up on our proverbial coffee tables. For all of us, not all of you, all of us know what it's like to experience relationships that have gone bad. All of us know what it's like to experience some sort of a relationship that is just headed down a downward trajectory. If you're married, you know what it's like. One of the frustrating things about marriage is marriage doesn't have any cruise control. The truth and reality of marriage is you're either growing together in oneness or you are drifting apart in isolation. In fact, I liken marriage to, to sitting in a canoe at the start of the Mississippi River. And you have to excuse me, I went to Bible college. I don't know geography too well. I think that starts somewhere up in Canada. And if you start at the, at the opening of the Mississippi River, you and your spouse, and you do nothing, absolutely nothing, you'll end up in the Gulf of Mexico. It's just a downward drift. 
And yet, if you're in the Gulf of Mexico and you want to get back up north, nothing ain't going to cut it. You're going to have to work hard. The natural downward drift to human relationships is that sin has ripped at the edges. All of us know what it's like to be in friendships that at some moment have gone south. Maybe at the opening of that friendship, it was great, it was wonderful. We were enjoying rich communion with one another. The chemistry was off the chain. Maybe you rode tandem bikes with one another. You're calling each other all the time and then something happened. The gossip happened, the lie happened, or maybe the idiosyncrasies started to creep up. And you're going, man, this is just kind of weird. And all of a sudden you begin to emotionally moonwalk away from each other. Others of you, you've got a bad relationship with one of your parents. Some of you are sitting here today, you hadn't spoken to a sibling in decades. Others of you, it's that son-in-law, that daughter-in-law, that son, that daughter. All of us, not all of you, all of us know the universal pain of a relationship or relationships that have gone south. Question on the table is, why is this? Just read Genesis chapters 2 and 3. They tell us everything we need to know why relationships are just so hard. Genesis chapter 2, speaking of the first human relationship between Adam and Eve, the Bible says of these two, they were naked and unashamed. I love this. The idea here is, is just far more than physical vulnerability. I think it's comprehensive vulnerability. They were comprehensively vulnerable and transparent and authentic. They enjoyed rich communion with God. In fact, Genesis 3 says, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, they hid themselves. Now, as my youngest used to say when he was little, this kind of freaks me out because there are a lot of things walking in the garden. There's elephants and there's giraffes and there's orangutans, but how do they know on sound that's not an elephant or rhinoceros, that's God, unless they had walked with God so much and enjoyed such rich community that they knew what he sounded like, not just off sight, but off of sound, they knew that's God. And then Genesis 3 happens, sin enters into the world. What's the first thing they do? They begin to hide from each other. They go to the local Louis Vuitton store and buy these designer figs and cover up. The transparency is gone. The vulnerability is gone. The authenticity is gone. They start hiding from each other. And then they start hiding from God. God now shows up on the scene and he says, where are you? If there's nothing else you get, I want you to understand this. What Genesis 3 teaches us, and it's a completely un-American concept, is sin is never just personal. It is primarily social. Why are my relationships so hard? Answer, a three-letter word with I right in the middle of it. Sin. The doctrine of total depravity says we were all born into this world woefully sinful. That's Romans chapter 5. Sin entered the world through one man and infected everybody. In fact, I love what my friend, Pastor Tom Schrader, right from this area, he says, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. <laughs> the color's everything. So as we dive headlong into the book of Philemon, I just want to frame it up by giving three realities that govern every relationship in our lives. One, 
Relationships are a venture between two very broken, flawed people. We are in that friendship, in that parental relationship with a sinner. You married a sinner. In fact, right now, you are sitting next to a sinner. I know I'm at Scottsdale Bible Church, but let's have a Pentecostal moment right here that's going to weird out the introverts in the room. Would you just turn to your neighbor right now and say, hello, sinner. Some of y'all said that a bit too emphatically. Number two, because of sin, there will be severe challenges and periods of brokenness in our relationships. I hear women say this all the, all the time. Yeah, I just don't do well with female relationships because females just have too much drama. As if you don't. <laughs> to even things out, I hear men bemoan the difficulty of having relationships, friendships with other men. My mentor Dennis Rainey says, you put two men next to each other, the natural default is to compete. So what am I saying here? I don't care where you are in the spiritual spectrum. If you're here and you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, wouldn't call myself a Christian, please understand, is there hypocrisy in the church? Absolutely. But the church doesn't have a monopoly on broken, flawed, hypocrites. Wherever there's people... There's drama. They're in God's house and they're at the frat house. Thirdly and finally, if we want healthy, rich, deep, and meaningful relationships, we must do the hard work of reconciliation. Listen to me, if every time someone gossips about you or lies on you or their idiosyncrasies come up or the sin happens and you just kind of set up a boundary, emotionally moonwalk away, isolate yourself, don't be surprised when you wake up one day in your 40s, 50s, and 60s and wonder, why don't I have friends? This illustration works out west. It doesn't work too well down south. But all of us right now in her refrigerators, we have salad dressing. This doesn't really work down south. <laughs> For the most part, with salad dressing, you never just take it and dump it on your salad. Because you understand that salad dressing has two disparate entities that just don't get along, oil and water. And when these two settle, they go to their own proverbial corners. They don't mix well. So what you do with your salad dressing, before you just dump it on the salad, you just shake it up. You do an intentional act and you shake it up for the purpose of getting these two disparate entities that just don't naturally get along to now enjoy close community with one another. What am I saying? Relationships are like salad dressing. Because of sin, I'm messed up. You, you get into a relationship with me, the honeymoon period opens, you're, you're going to see flaws. And I'm going to see flaws in you. But if we're going to enjoy a rich, vibrant relationship, I'm not just talking about something that's surfacy. I'm talking about something that's, that's, that's deep, authentic. 
There's going to be periods in our relationship where we got to do some shaking. Now, I, I got to talk about the lie. I, I, I got to talk about it. And, and sometimes it's awkward. I, I remember our family once vacationed with another family, and, you know, we, we, we went away, and, you know, little stuff can irritate you. Like, man, we're spending a way... You know, it's just kind of one of these communal things, and we're, we're sharing groceries, and I'm kind of spending a lot more on the groceries. But y'all eating up more of the stuff, and then all of a sudden, halfway through the week, you tell me you ain't got money, but the next day you've got enough money to get a massage? <laughs> See, that kind of stuff just makes me run a low-grade fever. <laughs> so sometimes we got to have some shaking. I, I, I got to talk about this. I do the work of reconciliation. We come now to the book of Philemon. If there's one word I want you to write down in your Bibles or in the notes app, Evernote, whatever it may be that you're digitally taking notes on, if there's one word that sums up the book of Philemon, it is the word reconciliation. Philemon is all about getting two individuals who have fallen out of relationship with one another. And here is Paul shaking the proverbial salad dressing bottle. And he's trying to get Philemon and Onesimus to have a deep, rich relationship. Philemon is the handbook on what it takes to walk in reconciliation with others. I thought coming to Scottsdale this weekend, I could get through Philemon in one message, but I can't. Reason why we're doing a two-part series is because in part one, I want to look at the book of Philemon through the lens of Onesimus. O Onesimus represents the person who has violated, who has offended, who has hurt, who has wronged another person. I'll unpack Onesimus in just a few moments, but I want us to stop right here and take a dose of humility because that's all of us. All of us at some point have played the role of Onesimus. Granted, for many of us, it's inadvertently. We've all said things we shouldn't have said, done things we shouldn't have done. We have hurt other people. So tonight, I want to ask the question, what does God require of we Onesimuses when we violated someone? Tomorrow, I want to turn the tables. Tomorrow morning, we're going to look at reconciliation through the lens of Philemon. What do I do when I've been wronged? What do I do when, when I've been hurt? How do I mend that relationship with that, that dad who walked out on me when I was very vulnerable? How do I handle this? In order to come to terms with this, we have to understand a little bit of the story of Philemon. Philemon is a wealthy individual. We know this because in the opening verses of our text, Paul talks about Philemon and the church that meets in his house. Brothers live in large. He's got a house big enough to accommodate a church. Not only that, and this is especially problematic for me as an African-American, we know he's wealthy because he owns at least one slave, if not multiple slaves. It's impossible for us to come to any text of Scripture completely objective. We bring our biases, we bring our worldviews, and, and I come to the text as an African-American man, and I nurse a low-grade fever with Paul when I read Philemon because I want him to be far more vociferous in denouncing this institution of slavery. 
Paul, I wish you would just come out throwing haymakers. What are you doing owning people? I do think though, in fairness to Paul, I think he takes a subtle swipe at it. Verse 15, he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Watch it, verse 16, no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant or a slave as a beloved brother. I think Paul's taking a swipe at the institution. He's envisioning a day that, that Onesimus comes back and he's no longer a slave, but he's on equal socioeconomical grounds with Philemon much more than a slave as a dear brother. Well, what went wrong? Here's Onesimus, he's enslaved to Philemon. Philemon's living in Colossae. One day, Onesimus the slave decides to up and leave. Now again, through my lens, I think this is a good thing. And if that was all he did, I I don't see anything wrong with that. The problem most scholars tell us is, is here's Onesimus enslaved to Philemon in Colossae. He ends up in Rome where Paul is. And most scholars tell us that in order to fund the trip from Colossae to Rome, this long trip, Onesimus steals from Philemon. He takes from him. He defrauds him. Here's Onesimus, he makes the journey. Scholars are divided here. One side of Philemon scholarship says that Onesimus already had a relationship with Paul. Another side says, ah, no, they just kind of, in a sovereign twist of providence, Onesimus just stumbles into Paul. Either way, Paul meets uh, Onesimus there in Rome, leads him to faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 10 when he says, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I I led him to faith in Jesus. And now Paul begins to hear Onesimus' story. And herein lies an awkward moment. Onesimus is now saved. He begins to unfold his story. Yeah, Paul used to work for a guy named Philemon. And Paul's like, well, that's a long way away, Colossae to Rome. How'd you fund the trip? Onesimus hangs his head. He says, well, I, I, I stole from him. And, and the record scratches. Paul says, I hate to tell you this, bro you got to go back and make that right. Maybe Onesimus says, oh, wait a minute, Paul. I I thought you'd mean, I thought you said I was a new creation in Christ. All things are new. The old has passed away. And and, can't we just let bygones be bygones? Paul says, no. You wronged this person. You just can't sit up in here and serve the Lord knowing that you offended someone. What do I do when I've wronged someone? Three quick points in our last, gosh, 13 minutes and 40, 39, 38 seconds together. (laughs) Number one, we must see that horizontal reconciliation requires vertical reconciliation. Horizontal reconciliation requires vertical reconciliation. Verse 10 again, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. What is he saying here? The gospel has invaded your heart. It has invaded your life. Jesus is living inside of you. You cannot tolerate broken relationships with other people. 
Yes, I want you to write down Romans 12, 18. I think every believer should know this. It is the classic verse on reconciliation when Paul writes, as best as you can, as best as you can, as best as you can, be at peace with all people. This is a loophole when it comes to reconciliation. 5% of us, 5% of the time, we, 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 we know this loophole. We, we look, I, I've, I've tried. I've tried to have the conversation with my dad, tried to have the conversation with my in-law, tried to have the conversation with my adult child, tried to have the conversation with that friend, tried to have that conversation. I've done my absolute best. Romans 12, 18 says, well then, okay, you can sleep well at night. But Philemon isn't about Romans 12, 18, because Onesimus hadn't even tried. Parenthesis. I want to be careful because some of you have been sexually abused and assaulted and don't hear this message as I need to have a profound and deep relationship with the one who assaulted or abused me. The God we serve is a forgiving God and he's also a just God. You can forgive that person and they can serve jail time. But all that's in the 5% category. My experience as a pastor over the years has just awakened me to the painful reality that believers are, are very content. We have a high tolerance for just dwelling in broken relationships. And we can come into the house of God, never making an attempt to make things right with that brother or sister. We just kind of come and worship God. And yet there's people in the church right here at Scottsdale Bible that, that we just don't even speak to. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 5. I love this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, I love this as a pastor, leave your gift at the altar. <laughs> Text it. He says, first be reconciled to your brother. What is God saying? You and I ain't right. If you and people who've been made in my image ain't right. See, that's very un-American. Because we Americans think, yeah, I just have my personal quiet time. I got my Bible. I got my, my journal. I'm sitting in my favorite seat. Got my Beth Moore bobblehead doll right there. It's just me and Jesus. I love Beth Moore, by the way. Now, this thing is communal. I've seen this happen all the time in the house of the Lord. I've pastored churches with multiple services and multiple sites. Church I pastored in New York City, we had 11 locations. What I picked up real quick on multiple service, multiple site locations are breeding grounds for division. We can go to the same service, same location. Things are wonderful, man. We're hanging out all the time together. We're sitting next to each other in worship service. We got a routine. We go out to brunch afterwards and something happens. And all of a sudden I start going to another service at another location. I know that doesn't happen here at Scottsdale. Paul says, what are, what are you doing? Onesimus, the good news of Jesus Christ is in your heart. 
fact, I really believe that what Paul points to is that the arc of scripture, if there's one word that sums up not just Philemon, but all of the Bible is reconciliation. Here's God, he creates Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden, this wonderful utopia. He gives them one prohibition, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do they do? They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does God do? He doesn't wipe his hands clean of them. He doesn't say, man, I told you, I gave you the perfect situation. Let, you're just on your own now. No, what does he do? He comes after them and he comes after them and he comes after them and he kills an animal. That animal's blood covers their sin and covers their nakedness. Later on, when he's setting up the nation of Israel, he builds into the law a reconciliation mechanism. It's called the sacrificial system. It is God saying, I know you're gonna blow it. I know you're gonna mess up. I know you're gonna Onesimus me. But when that happens, I'm not gonna wipe my hands clean of you. I'm not gonna emotionally moonwalk away from you. Here's what you do. You offer a bull, you offer a goat, you offer a sheep, come to the temple, and that blood will atone for your sins and will be reconciled. Finally, things reach its apex on a hill called Calvary where here is God all throughout the Old Testament. The nation of Israel has been poking him in his eye. They've been sinning against him, offending him, offending him, offending him, offending him. Not once does God say, I'm done. But he offers his only son, Jesus Christ. His only son. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and watch it now, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul's like, don't you get it? You are here today because of God's persistence of reconciliation. And in some way, our horizontal relationships must tell the truth of what God has vertically done for us in reconciling us to himself. Yes, number one, horizontal reconciliation requires vertical reconciliation, but secondly, reconciliation requires repentance. Verse 12, I am sending him back. I'm sending him back. I'm sending him back to you. Here's Onesimus. He's gone from Colossae to Rome. The gospel invades his heart, what Rosaria Butterfield calls the train wreck of the gospel. Paul says, you've got a broken relationship. I don't want you to just pray about it. I, I don't want you to just journal about it. I don't want you to just think about it. Get your hind parts back to Colossae. Fix it. It's called repentance. Repentance is not just confession. Confession, Greek word homologeo, it means to say the same thing. Repentance is a 180 degree turn away. It is a walking away. Literally for Onesimus to make it right, he must literally turn back away from Rome and march to Colossae. got me thinking of a passage in Luke, a very familiar story of a guy by the name of Zacchaeus, who's a chief tax collector. He's made a living wronging people. 
Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. The train wreck of the gospel invades his heart and life. What does he do? As soon as the gospel hits him, huh, I've wronged a lot of people. Up to half my goods I'll give to the poor. And for anyone I've wronged, I'll restore it back up to, the, up to them fourfold. Jesus says, today, today, salvation has come to your heart. Zacchaeus doesn't get saved because he's going to repair or right the wrongs. That's work salvation. Instead, Jesus flips it on its ear and he says, an indicator light letting you know, as my grandmama would say, that you are sure enough saved. Is when you Onesimus somebody. When you Onesimus somebody, you can't sleep well at night. Like if the spirit is in you, you just can't sleep well at night. I gotta deal with this. What does this mean practically for us? If you Onesimus somebody by gossiping about them, it's not just good enough to say I'm sorry. And by the way, let, let's talk about how to have a genuine apology. Genuine apology is I'm not, uh, it, it's not, I'm, I'm sorry you took it that way. It's I'm sorry and it's specific with no disclaimers. To walk the road of repentance literally means I go to the people I gossiped to about you. And I return back to you what I defrauded you from, your character and integrity. That's repentance. See, as we close, what we're getting at here is thirdly and finally, reconciliation requires humility. Think of how humble Onesimus had to be to literally walk from Rome back to Colossae, not knowing, I mean, it, it's humbling to call somebody and go, hey, yeah, I, I've just been a little convicted about something I said about you, the way I've treated you. I, I'd love to grab a coffee with you and I just wanna apologize. And, and you don't know what's coming. That's humbling. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided into each other off the coast of Russia there in the Black Sea. And in the investigation that ensued, the investigators were shocked by what they found. They realized their investigation showed that these two ships collided not because of some technological glitch or some mechanical malfunction, no. What they discovered was both captains of both ships saw the other one coming warned the other one, but neither one was willing to budge. So because they refused to move an inch, hundreds of people died. How many relationships they shipwrecked? And I know most relationships flounder and it's complex and it's nuanced and there's typically mutual culpability. 
maybe humility is saying, let me own what I can own here. I love the story of Muhammad Ali. Two things as we close. True story, Muhammad Ali is on an airplane at the height of his powers in the 1970s, greatest of all time. The captain gets on the PA system and says, look, we're about to hit a little bit of turbulence. I want everybody to fasten their seatbelts. Flight attendant moving to her seat notices that Muhammad Ali, this great heavyweight champion, hadn't fastened his seatbelt. She bends down, whispers into his ear so as not to embarrass him. Mr. Ali, please fasten your seatbelt. To which he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she says, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> now please, fasten your seatbelt. You know, I love Ali, one of the most endearing characters ever to step on the stage of world history. And yet, for all of his endearing qualities, he was never known for his humility. Does anyone wonder that when he died, he died on his fourth marriage? See, Ali teaches us you cannot be a narcissistic, self-centered person who never is humble enough to own what you need to own and have great relationships with others. If you're married, you, you Onesimus, your spouse all the time. <laughs> Friends do this to each other all the time. Speaking of time, I'm out of it. I've really been preaching this text wrong to you. 40 minutes, I've been teaching it wrong. I've been preaching the secondary application of the text, not the primary application. See, Philemon is a breathtaking picture of the gospel. We're all Onesimus. Philemon is God. Our sins wrong God. Every time we lie, every time we commit an act of greed, every time we're selfish, we Onesimus God. What is Paul? He's the mediator. He is, he is a type of Christ who is facilitating this relationship. That's why Paul would write of Jesus, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Don't you understand? Until you are humble enough to see yourself as a perpetual Onesimus, who constantly offends God, what does God do? Verse 17, he, he receives, he welcomes us back. He welcomes us back. He welcomes us back. Until I'm astounded by that grace, until I see myself as Onesimus, I'll never do the work of shaking, not sweeping. Shaking. I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. I've got a haunting suspicion. For we Onesimuses. 
that as God's word was going forth, the spirit of God was bringing up faces of people you've wronged. Would you just ask God for the grace and the strength and the courage to go back, to repent? Would you ask God for the grace and the strength and the courage to see yourself as it relates to God as Onesimus? So Father, we revel in your grace tonight as the songwriter said, it is truly amazing. How many times just today did we wrong you? And God, what are you about? You are about perpetual reconciliation. You just never stop. God in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself. And you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. Yes, I understand the primary application of that is vertical. You've called us to be ambassadors for Christ and to evangelize. But I don't think it's beyond the scope of, of Scripture to say that there are horizontal implications of that. So God, would you give us the courage to pick up the phone, send the text message, sit down over a cup of coffee, write the email, however the form may happen, and to own what we need to own and to right the wrong. It's in Jesus' name we pray.